equals 3B, I just didn't get. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't see where that could be used in life, and so I didn't, didn't, I'm probably capable of learning more complex issues with math, but it just never, I never had a desire. I looked at that, I thought, where in the world? Now, I see now we're in engineering and other fields, science. Where in the world would a person use this junk? And I just didn't apply myself, and consequently, I, I, I got by with as little math as I could get by with. You had to take either algebra or, or two or geometry in high school as, as a requirement when I was there back in the day. Uh, and I took geometry because geometry made sense to me. It was angles. It was, uh, you know, parallelograms and trapezoidal triangles, and I, it made sense to me. In fact, in, in cutting a piece of crown molding to put up in somebody's house, you're, you're using geometry. And so I could, I could conceptualize, okay, this, is, this has some real-world world application here. But boy, the algebras and the trigonometries and the calculus, and I'm glad that works for you, and I'm for you. <laughs> I'm just not with you. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's beyond me and beyond certainly my desire to get into that. But as we examine for these next few weeks <clears throat> this, uh, what I'm calling, yes, there's math involved in I didn't like the title either, but that's the truth. That's the truth of the Christian life is there's math involved. There's, there are some things we need to look at that, and we will this morning, that need subtracted out of our lives. It needs to be done away with. Some things that need to be added into our lives, and then we need to learn this concept of multiplication, of reproducing ourselves and pouring our lives into someone else behind us. They see and learn and glean from the experiences, both good and bad, that we've had, and we learn to multiply ourselves. As we look at some of these things this, this month, um, I trust that you'll, you'll like me, <clears throat> the things you struggle with, think that's true of me, but I need to apply it whether I agree with it or not because it's, it comes from his word. And the things that you're okay on, it's okay to pat yourself on the back on and go on to the next thing because I'm going to tell you, the next thing may not be as, as easy on us sometimes as, as the, the last thing was. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll look together at several verses here today. We want to be in Ephesians 4 both this week and, and next week. But we want to look at several verses in Ephesians 4 that deal with this idea of spiritual subtraction today and see what we need to subtract out of our lives. Verses 22 to 28 together. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Those who have been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. The setup here is in verses 22 to 24. You were taught in your old, uh, former way, in your former nature, basically, to put up, to, to lay that down, to put that off, to subtract that out, and to pick up this new man, this new woman, this new image that we are in, to be in Christ, and to clothe ourselves with those things. But in order to do that, we've got to see what we've got to lay down first, and one of which is this. I want to begin with this idea of subtracting out the lies. Subtracting out the lies, look at verse 25. Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. You must put off falsehood. Most people who lie as a lifestyle, and psychologists call that pathological, 
who, who lie as a lifestyle, who, who see, see, see the falsehood in something quicker than they see the truth in and are always looking for an angle to make themselves look better, usually, are pathological in, in the sense that they don't even notice it anymore. They go to the lie initially because that sounds better and seems better, at least in the moment, than the truth. And I find myself over and over and over again heading to the lie, heading to the, what, what's going to look better for me, what's going to come out better for me, what's going to be the best outcome for me in this situation and make me uh, come out of this either looking better or being better in the end. And sometimes the lie seems more palatable, more swallowable, more digestible than the truth. And so they get in the pattern of that <clears throat> and it becomes a lifestyle. And there's, there's, there's points at which they can't even see the truth. In fact, he, uh, headed far enough down that path, you can't, see, you can't distinguish the truth from a lie anymore. You can't even see what is true from what is real and what isn't. And so that, that, that's part of the problem he's talking about here. But there's also those that are not pathological liars or situational liars. They see the situation and determine the situation would say, well, this is what I would desire to happen in this situation. So I'm going to act as if and speak as if and tell as if this is what did happen, this is what I desire to happen. And so the situation defines the truth instead of a lie. And we, we lie in the situation. We're not pathological about it. In fact, we recognize the wrongness of it. Most folks who are situational liars recognize the wrongness of situational lying and ch- choose to do it anyway because in the situation, I come out, again, looking better at, at the end of this than going in. Situational liars, they, they tend to lie in the moment for whatever that situation is calling for or, or seems to be the best idea for them. Still another type of falsehood is what's called spin. And we see this a lot in the media, we see it a lot in politics, we see it a lot in business, where my, the perception I want you to have is what I'm going to spin to you. The truth may be something altogether different, or maybe there may be some truth in it. I'm going to spin it in the most positive way, rather than cutting away to all, all the fluff and all the clutter to get down to what is actually true about the situation. I'm going to spin it to you and, and, and let it come across to you as more enhanced, more, more, more good than it actually is. Uh, Wall Street and, and Fifth Avenue are really good at this. They're good at spin. They're good at telling you about every third commercial on TV what you deserve. You deserve this kind of car. You deserve to drive an Audi. You deserve to drive a Lexus. You deserve to, you deserve to wear these kinds of clothes. You deserve to have these, this, this pair of shoes. You deserve to have hair that looks this fresh and shiny and clean and manageable and body and whatever else they're supposed to do. I don't know. But you deserve this kind of look. You deserve to walk in this. You deserve this kind of house. You deserve this job. And, and over time, we, we hear enough of what we, what we deserve that we, we start to believe the spin. We start to, maybe I do deserve that. Maybe that is what my life is supposed to be about. Maybe, maybe I've missed it, and that is actually it instead of where I'm at today. And spin is, a, is, is all over our culture. But the Bible says those things have no place in the life of a believer. Those are old self-concepts. This new self-concept walks in truth instead of a lie. It puts off all falsehood, uh, and it sits it sits it aside. And actually, this idea of this phrase, put off, you'll see some things in Scripture, these, these kinds of phrases. In fact, you see put off very often in the New, in the, in the new Testament and some in the Old. In the Old, you'll see more to, uh, the Scripture admonishing us to lay things aside, lay that aside, lay aside this. In fact, there's a few instances in the New Testament where that occurs too. But more often in the New Testament, you'll see put off. And this phrase put off in the original text in the original Greek really means to, to dissect and, and devour, to put it to death, to cut it out, We're seeing it more or less like a cancer that needs to be discarded, deleted, and destroyed, uh, as opposed to laid aside for another day, to pick up again another day. He said, no, you lay these aside, they're gone. 
for good. Cut them out. See the cancer <clears throat> that falsehood brings and cut it out of your life to where it no longer rears its head. Uh, subtracting out the lies is easier said than done. When you, when you are in, in an opportunity where well, I really look better with the lie than the truth in the situation. So let me, let me add a little spin. Let me add a little butter. Let me add a little gravy to this where I come out at the end of this smelling a little, little nicer than I went in. And that's what the enemy says when we'll get into what he says more, more in just a moment. He's, he's a pathological liar. He says in John 8, in fact, he, rec- he sees the lie before he sees the truth. He, he knows the truth. He understands it. He can read the end of this book. <laughs> he knows what's going to happen to him, but he chooses rather to lie to himself and to us about our situations, our future. And he is the spin doctor and the spin master. What he subtracted out initially as he speaks to there in verse 25 is putting off all falsehood and walking in truth. Easier said than done in our culture, but what we're called to as Christ followers, subtracting out the lies. The next thing he's subtracting out, verse 26 speaks to this, is the temper. Look at verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. So we see here that it's not the anger, the problem. The problem is what comes after the anger, what the anger leads to. And and it's, it's in essence our response. He's talking then not about our anger, but about our temper. Not about the anger sticking it to us, but our temper causing us to get in situations and speak things that we would eventually regret. And I don't know if, the, if that's an issue with you, if, 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 that's, if that is uh, uh, something that you have seen growing up, but the, the, the key in, in filtering out the emotion, or filtering the, the, the temper out of the anger is learning to control our emotions, seeing the difference between anger and emotion. And they're drastically different. If we can, <clears throat> again, separate the emotion from the anger, we step into sin when we let our temper control the situation. Instead of seeing the anger, stepping back, seeing what's causing the anger, then how do I respond to this in a, in a way that honors God and speaks truth into the situation? Our, uh, our first initial response is usually the wrong one because it's the response we feel rather than the response that's true. He says here, in your anger, do not sin. Matthew 18 <clears throat> teaches us to make this timely. Matthew 18 says, if you have offense against your brother or your brother against you, go to your brother. In essence, do it now. Make, it, make sure it's quick. Deal with anger. Deal with, with whatever conflict there is quickly. Here, he says, not only to make it timely, but to make it timed. In essence, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't, don't let this, this day set and go beyond today. Don't carry this into tomorrow. It'll fester. Tomorrow it'll be bigger than today. And the next day it'll be bigger than it was the last day. And on and on and on that goes. He says, be angry, <clears throat> yet leave your temper out of it. Now, how do we do that? It's, it, it, is, it, is, it is a task to do that. As I, as I mentioned to you earlier, we've, we've got to learn, and it is, it is a process of discipline, to separate the temper from the anger. Jesus did that perfectly. As he walks into the temple, you know the story of his casting out the money changers in the temple. And <clears throat> he was angry in that situation. But his temper didn't take control because he took that opportunity to make it a teachable moment for them. You know, he just didn't go in and overturn the tables and cuss them out and leave. That wasn't his plan. He goes in and says, turns over the tables, turns the money over the tables, and they're all, you can see the scene of them scaring for the money on the ground. He said, my house is called a house of prayer, yet here you are making a den of, a den of thieves. Now, what they were doing was culturally and, and in fact, biblically acceptable in selling off temple overages. People would bring sacrifices to the temple, both in, in terms of animal sacrifice and, and, and monetary sacrifice and so forth. 
and they would sell off the things that were not consumed in the temple worship, in any normal concept of worship, acts, acts of worship in the temple, and what was not used by the priests and the Levites in the temple. And so whatever overages there were were sold off to the, back to the public, and the money put in the temple coffers to take care of the cost of keeping the temple running. And that was perfectly acceptable. You can find that, that practice that God lays out for them in Deuteronomy. See how that's done. What these guys were doing, were charging two or three times the price for this stuff that it was worth and consequently pocketing the difference. They would put, put the, the real value of, the, of whatever that was they were selling, uh, lamb leftovers or whatever. They're putting the real value of that and back into the church and pocketing the difference. And he said, listen, you're stealing from God, and that's not acceptable. And so he, he takes his anger and channels it into a truth that says, here's what the Bible says about this, but here's what you're doing. You've turned the house of prayer into a den of thieves. You're, you're thieving, you're stealing from God, stealing from the temple that which belongs to God and that which belongs to the temple. So we see his example there to say, separate the emotion from the truth. Separate the sin from the anger, or the temper rather from the anger. Now James 1 speaks to it this way. How do we do this? Everyone should be quick to listen, he says, slow to speak and slow to become angry because anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. That's what James 1 says. Easier said than done, isn't it? Well, to create a buffer between what happened and what is and what's about to happen. If, if, and sometimes it, 10 seconds is enough to do that. Sometimes it may take several hours for you to step back enough, figure out, Okay, let me take a deep breath. If I had spoken into that situation as it happened, I probably would have said the wrong thing and done the wrong thing. Said something I would have regretted and done something I would have regretted. But enough filter and enough buffer time for me to see what is and what isn't. See the truth from a lie. Recognize what needs to be spoken into that situation and recognize what, what, is, what is purely emotion. So if I can separate the emotion from the event, if I can separate the, the, the emotion from the anger, that's the process of my working through this. How do I, how, how do I, how do I, how do I get angry and yet don't sin? Well, I leave the temper out. I leave the emotion out. I separate the temper and the emotion from the anger. James 3 speaks of the fact that this is often done by the tongue. Uh, that the tongue is usually our, our own worst enemy. We say things in the moment that are spontaneous that, you know, an hour later, certainly a day later, I think, why in the world did I say, say that? That's not what I meant to say. That's what I felt in the moment. What I felt in the moment didn't, didn't really add anything, didn't, didn't explain anything. We're no, no, everybody's worse for it, not better. I can learn to tame my tongue, as James 3 says. I'll learn to separate the anger and the emotion, or the, the emotion and the temper from the anger, and I'll speak truth in those situations instead of what I feel. Uh, and constantly, if, if it isn't natural, it has to be learned behavior. So it's a process. It's a process that takes time. To, and if you've seen this growing up, if you witness in the home you grew up in, every time something wrong happens, anger and emotion, anger and emotion, anger and emotion, they're always interconnected. And he says here, it's okay to be angry about things. things. It's okay for things to anger. Some things should anger us, in fact, in our, going on in our culture. But to separate the emotion, to separate the temper from the anger is the key. It's a process. It's going to take time, especially if we've been, our default position is that's all I ever saw growing up. Well, I've got to unlearn that, try and unsee that, and unlearn that to move forward with anything different. But it is worth it. It's <clears throat> it is this quick to listen, slow to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry. There's a process involved there. And if we follow that process, we'll see some victory where our temper has eaten, has eaten us up. 
<clears throat> if that's an issue for you, here's some solace. Here's some verses of meaning, both in James 1 and in, in Ephesians 4. I say, anger's okay. Leave the temper aside. Third thing is this. Not only are we to <laughs> subtract out the lies and the temper, but we're to subtract out the opportunities. Look at verse 27. And do not give the devil a foothold. Don't let the sun go down while you're angry, he says. And then further than that, do not give the devil a foothold. Do not give him a foothold. So what's a foothold? Well, it's an opportunity for the enemy to blur the lines between what's true and what's false. For the enemy to step into that moment, into that situation, that circumstance, and blur the lines between the truth and a lie. If he can blur those lines, he has exactly where he wants us to. He can speak a lie into us, and that's exactly how we'll react and respond, usually in anger. Usually in, 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 with, a, with a flared temper, usually responding the wrong way. How does he do that? Well, as I said, as I said a moment ago, John 8 describes him as the father, the master liar, the father of every lie. Every lie that's ever been conceived started with him. He initiates every lie that's ever been told. Why? Because that's his native tongue, the Bible says. When he speaks, he speaks lies. That's exactly what his nature is. And he'll tell us this. Has he ever told you this? <clears throat> that's just the way you are. That's just your, it's just your nature. That's just nothing you can do about that. That that's just the way you are. Or everybody does it that way. Everybody handles these kinds of situations this way too. Both of those things rely. That's not just the way you are. We can teach ourselves behavior that moves from where we are, or where we were, to where God has designed for us to be. And we can blame our parents all we want to blame. Them. It's not our fault. We grew up to be adults, and we have minds and hearts and wills of our own. We can choose to follow the way we saw in the home we grew up in, or we can choose another way. And He's saying here, if that's all I saw. I need to unlearn that and unsee that. Kind of hard to do. But this process will take me to a way that is more God-honoring and less uh, falsehood-bearing, less truth-chasing, less or less anger-chasing. And we'll find, I can find it over and over, 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 over and over and over again to give him less and less and less opportunity, less and less of a foothold. And start to believe his lies that says, that's just the way you are. It's just the way we were born. No, it's not. It's my, it's, it's my carnal, sinful, fleshly nature that's pushing me into giving you that opportunity. Now, everybody doesn't ha- have handle life this way. I get that. I see that. But those are the ones without self-control. He calls on us here, and this is really, this whole passage is bathed in this concept of self-control, of dying to what I want and stepping into the moment with truth, stepping into the moment as Christ would step into the moment to say, here's what's true from what's a lie. Here's what to be angry about and where, where to stop the anger. Here's where to recognize the lie from the enemy and, and to not give him any more opportunities, not in this, not in my speech, not in my history, not in my, my upbringing, not in my job, not in my marriage, not in my money. Almost cease giving him, him opportunities to lie to me and to tell me this is what this situation needs when it's exactly the opposite of what it, what it needs. Uh, he's, he, these opportunities, these footholds, give the, the enemy another opportunity to tell us a lie and blur, blur the lines, as I said, between what is truth from what is lie, seeing what we want over what God wants for us. Now, we'll stay that way year after year, decade after decade, unless, and James 1 spoke to this as well, James 1, 19 to 21, he says, to get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. So how do I, how do I take those opportunities and fill them in to where, fill those footholds into where he can no longer grasp that? He can no longer use that against me. I fill those opportunities with the Word of God. I fill those opportunities with the Scripture that, that, are, that are 
eating my lunch day after day after day. So as he comes to tempt, as he comes to, to lie, as he comes to dissuade, as he comes to spin, as he comes to do all those things day after day, I fill the opportunities given him with the word of God. He says, the word planted in you will save you. Will save you from what? Will save you from the power and the grip of the enemy that he has over you, over your temper, over, over the lies, over the falsehood, to lay those things down. And so we... We'll stay that way until we learn to fill the opportunities and the footholds with the Scripture, with the Word of God. It, it is our ammunition if we use it that way. Subtracting out the lies, out the temper, and out the opportunities. Finally, and this is probably one you can see prevalently in our culture, we need to learn to subtract out the sense of entitlement. Subtract out the entitlement. Look at verses 28. Or verse 28. Those who have been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. They must work, do something useful, so that they'll have something to share with those in need. Now, verse 22 told us that desire is deceitful. Desire is deceitful. Verse 28 follows up to say that your life is more about what you want, or, or less of what you want, and more about what you need. In fact, this verse 28 says clearly, life is not about you. If I could, if I could and in fact, the message says it much this way, get over yourself. Life is not about you, and it was designed to be about you. You were born to bring glory to God and to honor him in every way and to, and to tell the story, of that God-honoring story of your life and to other lives. You were designed, born to glorify him and to bring others with you to the king and to the kingdom. Now, that's not what our culture reads and teaches and, 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 and what we digest day after day from media, from, from, from academia, from really about any source, because it tells us life is about you. It's about what you want. It's about seeing your, your energies and your motivations fulfilled to where you're happy and you're satisfied. And, and he says in this verse, no, that's not what life is about. That's what you're hearing that life is about. What life is about is less you and more them, less you and more him, less me and more you. Well, that's, that's in stark contrast to how most of our world lives, isn't it? It's in stark contrast to what we're seeing in business, in stark, in stark contrast to what we're seeing in, in schools, it's in stark con- it is stark contrast about everything in our culture, less me and more him. Uh, it, it, is, it is, the scripture is teaching us here, though, I think, I want to point out three things here in this sense of entitlement that I think verse 28 speaks to. The first is this, to value work over entitlement. He says here, let him who steals, steal no longer, and that's to say, you work for what fulfills you. Don't take it. In fact, you, know, you don't own it, and you don't deserve it. You work for it. You go after it to work. And, and if there's one thing that, that my dad instilled in me among hopefully a lot of decent things, it is, son, you work for what you get. If you don't value work, you're not going to value life because life's full of work. And you work, and as I told you before, one of his lines to me among many was, life's hard, then you die. Deal with it. And it is, because I'm not from here. And once I accepted Christ, I start to see life through a different lens and say, well, this doesn't work. It doesn't fit. And it doesn't work. And it doesn't fit because I'm from someplace else. My heart, my soul belongs to him. And the lens I look through starts to change to say, well, this isn't working very well here, is it? No. It's hard here, isn't it? Yes, it is. And and, he, and Jesus himself said, "Man is born." Or Job said, man born a woman is a few days and full of trouble. Jesus himself said, in this world you'll have trouble. This is a troubled place. We, we live in a broken world with broken models and, and, and wounded hearts, and we think this is supposed to work here. And on its best day, it can be fulfilling. 
but on its best day as well, it can be very frustrating. Why? Because we're not designed for here. Can we experience frustration and fulfillment at the same time? Yeah, we can. He did. And, and did the story I told you of him, him going in the temple, overturning the temple tables, was, was frustration and fulfillment at the same time to say, this is wrong, but I'm going to speak truth to you so that you hear it from, from the mouth of the source. And so as we learn to, to, to walk in truth and not in a lie, we'll learn to see ourselves as as less and less entitled and less and less due and less and less uh, put on the pedestal that the world puts us on and more selflessness out of our life. That's the first thing, the value of work over entitlement. The second thing I think he speaks to here, and he speaks to that with, with thievery, the second thing I think he speaks to here is that work should be useful, doing something useful with your hands, he said, something that's productive, something that produces something of value both to you and to others. And again, I go back to about a 14, 15, 15-year-old boy having my first part-time job thinking, man, this work stuff is not, it's not all it's laid out to be. I'm working hard and get paid a little. And said, Dad said, son, don't let your feet hit the floor in the morning dreading what you're going to do the rest of your life. Life's too short. Find something you love to do and then figure out a way to get paid for it. And I, I saw that. You know, you, can, you couldn't give me a grocery store then and now. The grocery business is hard work. But my dad loved it. He got up every day, feet hit the floor, going to that grocery business and trimming produce and getting things ready for people to come in and buy those. And he, he, just, he just fed off of that. He loved it. There was nothing about it that I liked. I spent my summers over there as I was growing up as a kid, dusting shells and rotating stock and, you know, getting the, the, the new pulled to the back and the old pulled out front and, 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 and all the things that are associated with the grocery, but going with him to market to buy produce and hearing him digger back and forth with these guys. And I thought, why in the world? But I saw it. I mean, I witnessed it. He, he, it was his passion. He came home at night very tired every night because he long days, but it was a fulfilled tired. It was a satisfied tired. And I saw that. And so as I heard him say, find something you love to do and then figure out a way to get paid for it. I saw in him, find something useful. Find something productive. I saw this verse come alive. Find something that gives you, that gives you meaning and purpose and, and passion and follow that. And over and over and over again, the culture behind us, or the, or the generation behind us, a culture is telling them, chase the money, chase the, 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 the notoriety, chase the position, chase. We need to chase, we need to teach the generation behind us to chase passion. If we can teach them to chase passion, they'll find fulfillment in the midst of frustrating, in the midst of a frustrating world. They can find fulfillment there if they'll chase passion, if they'll chase something that's useful with their own hands. The third thing is, is not only about to value work over entitlement and work should be productive, but the third thing is this, is that the produce, the results, the money, if you will, the, the, the what's left after the, after the work, is to be used to meet the needs of others. Now, I said, uh, over and above ourselves even. Now, I think some context is important here because... I don't think Paul is talking about here the culture. I, I could mis, be misunderstanding his, his, his text, but I don't think he's talking about the culture as much as he's talking about the kingdom because he's speaking to the church here about the church. So if you, if you have that context in mind to say, okay, my, the, the, where I recognize the need must exist is in the kingdom, in the church, inside the, inside the body of Christ first. And so I meet those needs first before I step out into the culture and begin meeting needs. Acts 2 speaks to that clearly and, 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 and in great detail. They, in fact, they sold all the possessions and brought them in a pool and lived out of the pool as each had need. And, and as those with, with much gave to those who had little, and, but everybody valued the work and everybody valued their, the, the body over themselves. So that's what he's saying here in this concept of 
what you produce needs to have some significance to it. It should just be to, to buy a bigger house and a nicer car, or nicer clothes, or more for your kids that are already spoiled in the first place. It should be about meeting the needs of other people. Who around me is God placed in my world? And, and you probably don't have to think very long as you think of these things. Who is God placed in my world within my sphere of influence that needs what I have? That perhaps even if I have a little or a lot, I've got something to help meet a need in their life, in their world. Whether it's, I don't care, groceries or clothes or, or something for their kids who don't have a lot. But as you recognize those around you that God's placed in your sphere of influence that are in need, does he compel you to help meet it? Well, that's, that's exactly what he's talking about here to say, let them move, steal, steal no longer, but let them work with their hands, providing something useful to meet the needs of others, not ourselves. Getting ourselves off the throne and getting others at a, at a more important place than us. And I think the context of that starting inside the body is what Paul's trying to get across to. This, is, this, whole, this whole idea of Ephesians 4 is about how to live the Christian life with each other. So he's talking to the body about the body. So that, that kind of thing begins in the body. Where, who, who are those in, in need in the body that we can help? first. And so I think that context is really valuable there. It's also meaning that the church and the body is as well, I think, it's a subliminal meaning here, is about not what you can get from it, but what you can give to it. And we have, we have, we've grown guilty, and I've grown guilty as a pastor as well. We've grown guilty as, as believers in buying the lie that says, church should be about what I get, not about what I give. In fact, we look for churches in our culture about what feeds us, meets our needs, what I can glean, what I can, instead of who needs me? Where can I pour myself out? Where can I empty myself into the body that, where there's a real need for whatever God's gifted me to be able to do? Where can I give? Where can I serve? Where can I love? Where can I grow? Where can I pour my life into someone else's life the best? And, and we've become, and even, even inside the church and inside the kingdom, a consumer-driven culture that says, well, that church's pastor is better than this one. This this guy's guitar player is better than this church's guitar player. And well, the pews are more comfortable over here. The air conditioning, the, 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 the facilities are nicer over here. And we, we find ourselves as a consumer-driven Christian thinking, that's pretty cool. Let me, let me get cool around this for a while. That's pretty cool over there. Let me get cool around this for a while. And we find ourselves, I, I do at least, after decades of this, of how to market church to unchurched people, thinking, you know what markets church to unchurched people? People. A changed life. Something God's done something in me to where my story is told and it's contagious to someone else. Not a more attractive facility. Not nicer bathrooms. And, and, and we need those. We don't need to worship in in in, uh, in squalor every week. I don't think that's what God's calling us to, and I don't think that's what this means at all. We shouldn't take our pride and our motivation and our and our and our passion into what I get from church but rather what I give to it, what I bring to it, what I bring to the kingdom and to those in the kingdom. I think is what he's talking about here as well, to say give our, learn to give ourselves away. Uh, Consumer-driven Christianity has no place in the kingdom and no place in the church, and yet it's all over the place, and, and it creeps into our own lives because, again, we believe the same liar with the same lie. It says these kinds of things are important, and they're not. The hearts and lives of people are what's important. Well, let me ask the obvious question as we close, and it's this. What kind of subtraction needs to occur in your life? What kind of subtraction is there that needs to occur in your life where we're putting off, we're letting go of, we're cutting out as if it were a cancer, cutting this out of my life to let it go to where it never rears its head again? Is it the lies? Is it the temper? Is it the opportunities, the footholds? Is it the sense of entitlement? 
What needs to be, maybe all of them to some degree or, or, in our, or another in our lives. What needs, to, what needs to go? What needs to be let go of? What needs to be subtracted out? I'm going to tell you a secret. It, it usually never gets there like that. It creeps in over time. As I say, often say, the enemy is incremental. He's always incremental in how he works with us. A little here, a little there. I'll swallow a little of that. And a year later, I'll swallow a little of that and a little more of that. And I find myself a decade later thinking, how did I get here? How did I get so consumed with me and not see you? Well, I got there incrementally with the enemy saying, you need this. You need this. This will make you feel better. This will give you greater value. This will make you feel more significant. And over time, I'm, I'm worshiping at the feet of me instead of the feet of him. And so I, I, didn't desire, I didn't want to get there. didn't plan to get there. But it, it was a process over time. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to be a process to unlearn those things, unsee those things, and head down a different course. That's what Ephesians 4 calls us to and why math is so hard in the life of a believer because there's some things I need to cut out, I need to let go of, I need to sit down and never, ever pick up again. The lies, the, the temper, the, the, the opportunities, the footholds, and this sense of entitlement. Well, here's what I want to encourage you with as we leave, and that's this. A doctor doesn't take a chainsaw into surgery. He takes a scalpel. I had a chainsaw accident several years ago. Uh, lower part of my thigh, I was cutting a tree, and I won't give you the gory details, but the chainsaw went to, went to my femur, went to the bone. And uh, uh, again, I'll leave some of the details out. But I, I, I'm sitting in the ER in the emergency room, and the, the ER doctor comes in, who his name was Dr. Fife, by the way. I said, it's not Barney, is it? No. Anyway, he comes in, lifts my pant leg up, takes one look, chainsaw. Yep, saying so. And he spent the better part of his time cutting away the jagged flesh so he could get some smooth ends to kind of sew back together, both inside and out. And with chainsaws, they just they wreak, they wreak havoc against anything in their way. And that's not that's not what this passage is talking about. It's talking about taking a scalpel into surgery to say, let's cut this out. I don't need to cut my influence off. I don't need to cut my world apart. I don't need to sell everything I have. I need to adjust my life. I need to adjust my mind and my thinking and my values around the Word of God. And so if I need to do surgery as it relates to lying and telling the truth, if I need to do surgery as it relates to, to giving the enemy a foothold, if, if what, what needs cut out of my life is a temper that I can't control, I don't cut that out with a chainsaw or I never get mad again or, or keep myself isolated so that I have no anger issues. No, I relate to people. I just control. I separate the emotion from the anger. I separate the temper from the anger. So I, I do that surgically. I do that with a scalpel, not with a chainsaw. No. So I, I, don't, I, don't really, I don't need to hear, well, I just need to make these huge wholesale changes in my life today. If that's what God's speaking to your heart, do it. But often, he just wants us to cut these things out one at a time, one situation at a time, one day at a time, to where over time, we look back on our lives five years later and think, I'm not that same guy anymore. I'm wanting different things. I'm seeing different things. God's given me a different lens, a different direction, a different desire. I'm valuing this over that, and I used to value that over this. If we do that surgically, we'll start to see over time how, to, how, that, how that works. And, and don't take a chainsaw to, to, to surgery. Take a scalpel, and here's your scalpel. This is the scalpel. This is what cuts the truth from a lie. This is what, what, what cuts what's real from what isn't. It's what cuts between the anger and the temper. It, it's the filter. It will, it will do surgery on us productively and 
sometimes with some pain, but with production every time. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit is always designed and desired to reinforce his word to say, yes, this is true for you. Do this, head in this direction, get rid of this, pull this, take this in. We'll look at some addition too, some good, some good, good addition. But as, as we walk through this Christian life trying to figure out what, what do I need to let go of? What, is, what does my life need to do without? Here's a good starting place as we saw today. Let's just walk in truth. Let's lay the temper down. Let's lay the, the foothold down and lay the sense of entitlement down where we start to see life through a different lens. And situationally, time after time, day after day, God will start to change our motives. He'll start to change our heart. He'll start to change the things we want. As we surgically start to set these things aside, we'll start to see a side of him and a side of others that we didn't see before. Why? Because those things are gone. They're no longer clouding our vision. They're no no longer in front of me saying, here's exactly what you need, and I see what I need, 